Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard... The nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the, the ear of the patient when they're really doing it tough. I reckon you can do this. You know, I believe you're going to get there. The eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power. It's a part of you. It took half of my life, my eating disorder, and it literally nearly took my life. But we, we've seen recovery in in kids, in teenagers in adults and in the elderly. So there's absolutely uh, hope. There is hope at endad.org.au. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the amazing Melanie Rogers with me. Melanie is the founder and CEO of Balance Eating Disorder Treatment Center and Melanie Rogers Nutrition, located in New York City. She's a certified eating disorder registered dietitian and supervisor and is accredited by the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals as a clinical supervisor in the treatment of eating disorders. Among her many affiliations, Melanie is the co-founder and past president of the New York City chapter of the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, an advisory board member at the Centre for the Study of Anorexia and Bulimia, and the co-chair of the Nutrition Special Interest Group with the Academy of Eating Disorders. She's an active member of several dietetic associations, including the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and the Greater New York Dietetic Association. Melanie is the author of an online ebook, now in print, entitled Redefining Wellness, The Ultimate Diet-Free Guide, and she is a professor in the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at New York University. Melanie has earned a strong reputation among her colleagues as an expert in the field of eating disorders and has been invited to present nationally and internationally on the latest scientific discoveries and treatment approaches within the eating disorder profession. Wow, you're truly incredible, aren't you? <laughs> Very hard to fit through that, but thank you, Millie. I appreciate that. Out there doing your thing. Oh, no, you've got such an incredible reputation and following in the field, and I have been a long, long-term admirer of all the work that you do. So thank you for joining me today. It's, it's honestly a true pleasure to have you here. Likewise, Millie. Really a pleasure. Thank you. So I'd like you to begin with giving our listeners a little bit of an insight into your own eating disorder journey. Absolutely. So I have my own lived experience, fully recovered, thank goodness. And we know that full recovery is possible. So I want to instill that hope out there for any listeners. My eating disorder started actually when I graduated from college and I headed off to live abroad. Uh, I was living in Japan at the time. And I think Millie, it was a combination of that kind of, we call it here in, in America, they call it the freshman 15 which is, you know, when you go off to college, you gain a bit of weight. We probably have something similar in Australia, I'm sure. But the point of it being that when you change your environments and you change who's preparing your food and when you're eating and you're partying, etc., you know, your weight can fluctuate. And my weight had always been so steady throughout my teen years. I never really worried about it, honestly. But that really shook me up. And my clothes didn't fit and I went through that whole experience where you start to think, oh dear Lord, I really hate what I'm seeing here and I hate my body. And I'd never quite encountered that to the same degree, to that level. So long story short, what happened is I decided that I, I needed to do something about it. I decided to go on a diet. We know where that leads. Started getting into running and started to lose the weight. And then I didn't realize and I didn't know that I had the genetic vulnerability for an eating disorder. And I have, you know, some of the personality traits, the perfectionism, et cetera. And I just went down the rabbit hole and I got super, super obsessive around the scale. And you know, that number, you just, you hit the goal you're looking for and then you want to go lower and then you want to go lower, then you want to go lower. And then you hit a point where it's not sustainable anymore. 
and that's when you start to really lose it. And so I went down that rabbit hole and so it was restriction and dieting that led me into it and then you come out the other side and for me coming out the other side meant starting to overeat at times so then I compensated with a lot of marathon running. So that was how it morphed for me and I think for a lot of people they don't realise that eating disorders can move around. So you can start off restricting but then you can kind of go into other behaviours and it is really common. I lost eight years of my life to that. The whole duration of the time I was in Japan, I was in Japan for eight years. I was struggling with that. And now, but the thing is, Millie, I would never, ever, ever have admitted that I had an eating disorder. I just was uber healthy and a marathon runner and all of that stuff. But even though that's what I told people, inside I felt so inauthentic. I remember running a marathon and people saying, wow, this is so great that you're running marathons. You're so healthy. And I remember thinking to myself, you have no idea. This is all about the fear of weight gain. That is the only reason I'm out here running these miles. So it's a really inauthentic experience and it's really hard to live life according to core values when this kind of this fear and anxiety is pulling you into behaviours that are just not in alignment. Long story short, I ended up with a, a very serious running injury and it just wiped out my running. I just was never able to run consistently since then. And that was 30 years ago. I'm aging myself. And it was the best thing that happened. At the time, it was absolutely traumatizing. My weight suddenly then really shifted and ballooned because I was still overeating but not able to compensate. My clothes not fitting again, all that self-loathing coming back. But at that time, around that time, I then moved here to the States to pursue my master's degree in clinical nutrition, not anything to do with the eating disorder at all. It had always been my goal to do this degree. But when I came here to America and I got involved in my studies, I just decided that my body, everything below the shoulders was disgusting to me. So I just started wearing my boyfriend's clothes. I taped up my mirrors and I just decided, you know, I'm going to live in my head. I'm just going to get into the academics and I'm going to ignore all this other stuff. And that's what I did for a year. But along the way, I started seeing a therapist because my anxiety was so high and another transition to another country, you know, that was hard to navigate. And I think the combination of starting to treat my anxiety and expectations and some of those narratives, even though we weren't directly talking about eating disorders, because remember, I wasn't admitting that I had an eating disorder, but treating the anxiety helped a lot, helped me with boundaries, helped me with setting up my own cadence and not overexerting myself. And then along the way, I was introduced to the nutritionist at NYU, at their counseling services. And so I, in desperation, honestly, desperation, I realized I couldn't restrict anymore. I'd lost the ability that I was just going to give it up and go back to trying to eat like I used to eat when I was a teenager, which was intuitively. I didn't know that that's what it was called back then. And also I was living with my boyfriend at the time and his weight never changed. And he would go to the gym and he would, you know, he'd do a couple of curls and that was it. I'm out. <laughs> you know, so he wasn't a big exerciser. And I'm looking at him and he's eating anything he wants and his weight's not changing. And I said, how do you do it? How do you control your weight? And he stopped and thought about it and he said, I eat when I'm hungry. I stop when, I, when I'm full and I eat what I like. And I just, I had an undergrad in biochemistry and this statement from him was like revolutionary. And I was like, oh my God, this is what I've got to do. And so I did. I started trying to copy his intuitive eating with the idea though, and the important piece here that I share with my clients, Millie, is that I gave up the steamed chicken and the steamed broccoli and all of that stuff and I ate real food and I ate what he was eating. So he was eating General Sal's chicken <laughs> with rice and sauce and it was fried and I hadn't eaten that kind of food for so long and I thought if you're going to do this you have to do it and I was terrified because I thought this is it my weight's going to even go higher and you know what that intuitive eating satiety and having real macros the macronutrients real carbohydrate real fat real protein and I had done nothing and 
I hadn't been dieting or over-exercising because I couldn't. I had just been committed to intuitive eating and honestly just ignoring my body. Now I know, now I, I put the pieces together because I have that knowledge and now that I, I, I went through a recovery process and it took about a year for my body to balance out. And, you know, the thing that makes me, it did make me cry was that the weight that I ended up back at post-recovery was the weight that I was more or less before I had gone to Japan. So my uni years weight back in college, meaning that that was kind of my biologically appropriate weight. And if I hadn't messed around with it and tried to control it so much, eventually I think my weight would have settled to where it's supposed to be without all of this trauma, really. So a little bit of a long story, but i got to tell you, my God, Nelly, being on the other side of that velvet rope, you know, your bandwidth, I mean, you get your bandwidth back. And, and as I tell my clients, I would never have been able to open balance my treatment center and do the things I've been able to do if I still had a full-blown eating disorder because it's too consuming, it's all-consuming. I couldn't agree with you more beyond that velvet rope is a whole big wide world of, I never quite know how to describe it. It's like I don't have words that accurately articulate the immensity of the freedom that yeah. lies in wait for people on the other side of an eating disorder. And you're right, because it is just this all-consuming beast. And there's no way you can do anything else in its full capacity or be in the moment and re really be truly present in it whilst you are in the midst of that insidious beast of an illness. I think you hit it on the head, Millie. If you think of what it would be like to, unfortunately, be incarcerated, like if you were literally in a prison, well, we've gone through COVID, so there's some similarities there with lockdown and such. But imagine that for however many years of your eating disorder, and then you get out, and it, you've got all this open canvas, this blank canvas to create your life without this illness just completely taking over all brain functioning. And, and it's a bit scary, actually, when we talk about with our clients about that because it's kind of like, I don't know how I'm going to fill in the gaps, but you do and you really, you know, you become who you are. So, yeah, it's for clients to know, Millie, that full recovery is possible is so important because for many, many people, they think they just have to, this is it, this is just how I have to do life, you know, so... It is heartbreaking. It's essential. And I love that you bring up the blank canvas. I use this analogy with my clients all the time. And I say to them, look, you know, yes, it, it can seem really, really scary. Oh, my goodness, what is life going to be like on the other side of my eating disorder? But I love to look at it as being a really empowering thing. And you have a blank canvas and you can throw brightly colored paint on that canvas in whatever which way you want to. You have a chance to reinvent yourself. You have a chance to create the life literally of your dream. Dreams. And so I like to kind of flip it and reframe it to being something that is this amazing opportunity, a really empowering opportunity, rather than something that is obviously there's still going to be a sense of trepidation and, and fear to an extent. But I think it's great to focus on on the opportunity of it all and the empowerment that can come with that. Absolutely. To someone who hasn't experienced an eating disorder, how would you describe how it feels to be you know, in the trenches of it? Great question. Let me think. There's a question I ask a lot of our clients or, or potential clients, and I, I ask them this litmus test question, which is how much of your day, when you're not preoccupied or distracted, do you spend thinking about food, calories, body image, weight, and, and maybe exercise, if that's your combo? How much of your day are you spending thinking about it? And we start at 50% and I ask people to raise their hand or whatever they'd like to. And we go from 50% to 120% of your day that is spent thinking about those items. And the research actually shows us nearly that for our anorexic restricting type clients, they are actually spending 110 plus percent of their time thinking about food because they're dreaming about food in addition to spending every single waking moment with the soundtrack going on in their head. So what it feels like is that we're having a conversation right now, but in the back of my head, I'm also thinking about at the same time, simultaneously, I might be thinking about, okay, I just had that for dinner. 
Um, not sure about that. I think I might have overeaten. After I get off here with Millie, I've got to go and run 10 miles. Or, or I might be sitting here pinching, body checking, pinching and saying, oh, these pants, they're tight. That means I've gained weight. Oh, my goodness, I'm going to have to run 10 miles tomorrow, whatever. In other words, it's just a constant noise and math. I think we must all be so good at mathematics because of the way we do the calculations of calories, right? And it's just this noise that's ever-present. And it's not just noise, which is also distressing. It's that the, the narrative that's going on is a constant critical narrative and it's a narrative that makes you feel more and more anxious every single day unless you do what the voice is telling you to do, which is restrict or for some clients it's purge or you know go out there and run those miles or whatever and weigh yourself obsession with great obsessive. So that that would be the best way, you know, if you just had this crazy song, almost like an earworm, when people get in the earworm with a song and they just can't shut it up. It's like that every all day, every day, but it's really toxic and very self-critical. That would probably be a, one way to describe it anyway. I resonate with that so deeply. It was like this incessant voice and sometimes it didn't seem like a voice it seemed like it was you know me it was like internal so it's really hard because sometimes people would be like oh what was it like having voices and then I'd think about it and I was like well at the time it didn't really feel like voices and I think that's the hardest part is because it can sometimes feel so internal that you're you're sort of like okay well is this me is this reality what is going on and you just I know sometimes I would just sit there with my head in my hands just screaming going oh my god just take this all away like I can't do another day of this and you're so right about the dreaming about it and then having that having that happen in your sleep as well it's just so intense there's no respite there's no no relief not at all and it just it makes you feel as we said it makes you feel anxious you know even if you carry the internalized voice right it's the eating disorder voice but it's we're hearing it as our voice right and so that's as you said Millie that's why it's so confusing that's why it's so hard we now know to try and do this on your own recovery that is because you're trying to be objective about something that is very subjective and internalized and the other thing is our executive functioning which is the front part of our brains here which is where our reasoning part of the brain is going on that's that's uh, offline it's not functioning in a rational way and hence we're doing these crazy behaviors crazy i say that in inverted commas hey we're doing excessive behaviors mm. that really don't make sense to anyone who has not struggled and that's a big part of it too because your your rational side of your brain is not working and this is why it's really hard to try and talk yourself out of it and talk yourself through recovery, um, which is why having a treatment team or, you know, and having our, you know, our, our great recovery coaches and such is, is so helpful to just get that more objective viewpoint. Totally. Absolutely. Now, in your journey, were there times where you felt hopeless? And, and if so, how did you keep that hope alive? For sure. Definitely felt hopeless. When I blew out my knee with the running and I, my, everything felt out of control. The running felt out of control. My life felt out of control. My weight. And the way, the way the eating disorder works, at least for me, my weight was a proxy for deep down, is anyone going to find me attractive and am I ever going to find love? Yet really at the heart of it, it's that, right? People are going to be repulsed by me because I think I'm repulsive. So it really goes to that core. And then when I got here to New York, I just thought this is it. I've got to figure out a way to live with this body that has become what it is. And it was really tough. I mean, I remember one day just being, I I was cooling out of my skin is how it felt. And I remember one day I was fully dressed. It was winter here. I just, I was here for a little while. And so I had my jackets on and all my normal clothes. And I just decided I have to run because I just can't bear this. Like, I just can't stand it. It's torturous living in this body. And so I just started running down, you know, the West Side Highway. There's a running track here, fully clothed in, like, street clothes <laughs> because I was just so desperate to just feel differently and feel better. And And I think for me, honestly, and for some of our clients that can be helpful is for a momentary period of time to kind of ignore 
certain things and just not block it out. And I'm not talking about total avoidance. I'm talking about strategic avoidance. So I think what got me through that despair was I just decided to shut it down. I wore my boyfriend's baggy clothes. I taped up my mirrors and I just focused on what made me feel good, which was at the time my academics, my master's degree. And I just lived in my head. And and I think that was how I could have hope that I could still have a fulfilling life, even if my body was, you know, in my eyes, disgusting. It's interesting the different strategies that we employ to 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 outsmart our eating disorder, and and I think this is the thing that people don't understand. And I think this is why I'm such a big advocate for individualized treatment for eating disorders rather than being like, this person has anorexia, therefore we will do X, Y, Z, than putting people in boxes because, you know, we know that eating disorders tailor themselves to, to, to the individual and they're constantly morphing and changing and therefore we have to be really mindful of that and looking at ways in which we can then tailor those treatments and, and our approaches accordingly when things do shift and change. Absolutely, Millie. Absolutely. It's so individualized because every, as you said, everyone gets there via a different route. And for everyone, it's a different pathway out. It really is, which is why it's so treatment heavy, why it takes a long time. And as you said, you really, you absolutely have to have that customized care. Otherwise, it's very difficult to find what works and resonates for you. How did your lived experience influence your decision to start working in the eating disorder field? Honestly, not at all. Uh, at least I can say that from a conscious level. My my real motivation for getting into nutrition was I wanted to be involved in preventative care. I lost my grandmother when I was very young and she was the first family member I had lost and we lost her due to heart disease and she was a, a woman who had struggled with her life, her weight all of her life and was in a higher weight body. And so my whole childhood was really about Nanny's got a bad heart. Nanny needs to lose weight. Nanny's eating jello and drinking tabs, which was one of the first diets. And I just thought it was horrible. And then when she passed away, it was had such an impact on me. I thought, I want to be a doctor because I want to help people not die young. She died in her early 60s. And then as I got a little bit older and I was on the pre-med track to go to medical school, I realized that actually when you're a doctor, you there's not much prevention you're doing. You're basically putting a Band-Aid on after the fact. So that didn't that lost its appeal. And uh, from talking to various friends at college, a friend introduced me to this, this field called nutrition, and you could be a registered dietitian, and I had never heard of it. And I thought, that's exactly what I want to do because then it's preventative. So that's really why I got in this track. And then when I got into the marathon running, even though it was part of my eating disorder, I decided to do a sports nutrition postgrad as well. So I was thinking maybe cardiovascular and sports nutrition. And my introduction into eating disorders really came when I was interning here after I did my studies. We do an internship, as you may well know, for to become a registered dietitian. And one of the reasons I came to New York is because there's an obesity research center here. And as a nutritionist, I thought, that's the place, right? They're going to have all the latest and greatest research going on. And I knew that the research dollars here were a lot more than what was going on in Australia, which is why I chose to study here in the first place. So long story short, I come here because of that particular center. I do my studies and then I get an internship there. And then after the internship, I actually got a position there as a researcher for the first couple of years. And it was while I was there that they were treating something called binge eating disorder. And they had a multidisciplinary team. They had a nutritionist. They had a therapist. They had an MD. They had a psychiatrist. And they also had a sports physiologist. The only person missing, Millie, was you, recovery coaches. But we know that now. And I was just, it blew my mind because as a nutritionist, we're medically trained. So the physiology, the anatomy, the GI, all that stuff. But I've always been intrigued by behavior and the psychology of behavior and how those two come together. And so for me, eating disorders represented this perfect coming together of all of those spheres that I loved. So I was just so intrigued. And so that's when I started in my foray to start working with eating disorders. 
And the kicker there is as I then started to go to conferences to get trained because none of us get training in eating disorders in school, as I was going to the conferences and listening and hearing about the ideology of eating disorders and the research, I started to put the pieces of the puzzle together and I had an aha moment and I was like, oh my God, that's what I was dealing with for those eight years in Japan. I had a full-blown eating disorder. So there was a lot of kind of self-realization and thank goodness working with my therapist to work through all that. But that was what led me from binge eating disorder, which is still my specialty, into working with, of course, our clients who restrict and everything in between. Now, I know that many of our listeners will already be familiar with your amazing work, but for those who aren't, can you please give us an insight into the many amazing initiatives that you've channeled your expertise into? Thanks, Billy. That's very sweet. I started out, my, my aspirations, my career aspirations were to start a private practice and to develop a group private practice. That was really what I wanted to do. And so after a couple of years of working for some other people, um, I, I opened my own private practice. Very, very scary for anyone who is thinking to do that, but well worthwhile. And then after a couple of years, I ended up with a small team of, of registered dietitians and eating disorders were our specialty. And at the time, we were the largest eating disorder private practice, nutrition private practice in New York. There was only four of us, but nonetheless. It was the largest at that time. But after about seven years doing that, Millie, your clinical knowledge obviously evolved during that time. And I realized after about seven years that the treatment we had in New York was not up to par. It used to be good, but it had slipped. And it, and we only had one place in town. And so, I, I, so then I reached out to our network here, our psychiatrists, our MDs and others, and said, listen, we've got to do something because I can't send my clients there any longer. We need a new place. And it's New York. For whatever reason, somehow I was elected to be the person to open the treatment center. And I didn't know anything about it because I'd never worked in one. And I was like, oh, dear Lord. But you figure it out. You figure it out. And as Wendy Oliver Pyatt, who started Oliver Pyatt Center, has said, she felt that probably because she had never worked in a treatment center was an advantage when she did finally open her own because she didn't know what the standards were. She just knew what her, what, you know, she wanted to do. And so she was able to create something really special. So that's what we've tried to do anyway. So I opened Balance uh, 13 years ago now. It's an outpatient treatment center. So that means we have people, our clients come to us during the day and they go home at night and they sleep at their own home on the weekend. But our most intensive program is 30 hours a week. That's our day program. We have an evening program for nine hours a week and then various one-night-a-week groups such as body image, men's groups, LGBTQ, and then, of course, individual services. So we've got four levels of care in the outpatient setting. So that's been 13 years of blood, sweat, and tears <laughs> and a lot, of, a lot of growth and, honestly, one of the hardest things I've done aside from being a mum and also something that gives me great pride. And the pride is really watching my team grow as clinicians and do their great work and then being with the clients and just seeing them progress and seeing them come to us and I hope this doesn't sound like I'm bragging but you know when they come to us and they've been through other treatment at other places which is all good care but they come to us and they just say there's something different about balance and it resonates for them and that always makes me just feel so so proud of what we're doing it's kind of worth worth you know worthwhile so so that's balance and I guess in, in the meantime, I'm very committed to two things other than the treatment of eating disorders and trying to stay right on the cutting edge. Because if we continue to stay on the cutting edge of the research and we're adopting that research into treatment, my hope is that we can reduce the treatment timeline and we can reduce the relapse rate. And the other piece is how do we get more people into treatment? Because it's only about 10% of people who actually get into treatment. So that's something that we need to work on. But my other work that I'm really, really passionate about is, I mentioned earlier, none of us get training in eating disorders. None of us. RDs, therapists, MDs, psychiatrists, recovery coaches with Carolyn's program, thank goodness you do, but other coaches don't. Hence, I took the position when I was invited to be a junk professor at NYU. So I teach the only eating disorder class there to the master's level students and then those students we have internships at Balance 
so they can come and do that training, which it's just so hard to find it. So that's one way we're trying to add to the the education of our up-and-coming new therapists and RDs. We have both interns coming to us. So that's one thing. And then the other piece is just through our association and supporting our international IDAP, International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals and the Academy of Eating Disorders and just getting involved in those associations because that's where you get committees coming together who are then advocating for change at the kind of the, the lawmaking and the bill passing level. So I guess as you get into your career, your the breadth of maybe what you might be interested in being involved in starts to expand. And I find that really exciting. It is. It's so exciting. So exciting. What do you think is the point of difference with balance? A couple of things, uh, if I may. Um, one thing that we've really fought hard to do, and I have to say, um, having a treatment center right smack bang in Manhattan uh, is very expensive. You, could, you can't even imagine the overhead. And then all of our team members are fully licensed professionals. That may sound normal, but you know, a lot of places to cut costs use interns and such to do a lot of the work and then they have their specialists there for the individual care. So every group, every individual session, everything is done by a licensed RD or therapist or both. And the main thing that we've done is we've kept the group size of all of our programming to 10. And we're unique in that now. We know from the research that group sizes are 10, maybe 12 at a push are optimal. They're absolutely optimal for the ability to have more individualized conversations going on in a group. But unfortunately, here in America, there's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions. And once you start to accept insurance here, the insurance system is, well, yeah, it's something. It's what we Oh, it's horrible. What we've found is a lot of the treatment centers over time have had to then double their group size. So they've got double the volume to make ends meet because the insurance pays about 50% of normal fee, depending upon where you are. So therefore, group sizes of 20, 25, and 30 have become more normal. And what our clients have said to us when they've come to us is they could get lost in a group of 20 to 30, they could hide. They didn't have to do the work. But when you're in a group of eight to 10, and I'm saying to you, hey, what do you think about this? You have to engage to a degree. And so that's been a real differentiator. Yeah, so small group size, everyone's fully licensed and we go, we invest so heavily in our training and our supervision. So we're just trying to, we're trying to maintain the gold standard of treatment and and I think the other part is that I'm I'm a clinician and I own the place, which means at the end of the day, I call the shots on the bottom line. And so if a client needs extra services or extra care and it's going to affect the bottom line, as long as, we, as, long as we're above the red, my, my call is get that client the care they need versus if I'm a venture capitalist or a private equity where the bottom line is the bottom line, then you as a clinician have less ability to be able to offer more individualized extra services to your clients that would really help them. But ultimately, it's about, no, that's an extra expense and we're not going to do that. And that's not, I hope this is not coming across as there's great work being done out there, but we do know that with mergers and acquisitions and a business model running a treatment center, often the bottom line is is kind of the decision that's made. And we don't do that. I could not agree more and it makes my whole heart so happy to hear you talk about how you look at things because so often that is not the case. So yeah, full credit to you for that. And I think, I don't know, but I think when you come from a place of lived experience and you're in this field, you just look at things differently and therefore you approach how you deal with your clients differently because you know what it's like to be there. Absolutely. I think you really, I think you're absolutely accurate there. I really do. And we're empaths, those of us that are drawn to the helping fields, right? And so it is, it's a balancing act because my responsibility is to my clients and helping them get the best treatment. And I have to also keep the lights on. So it's this constant balancing act. But that is, they're, they're our core values and my staff knows that. And, 
and that, that's how we've chosen to approach it. And to your point, Millie, that, that sits really well with me. Like I'm 100% okay, not even okay. I'm proud that we can do that because, again, other places that are not owner-run, clinician-owner-run may not understand the nuance. So I do understand that side of it too. Well, you should be so proud, so proud. Can you please explain why your treatment approach derives itself from a philosophy based on the principles of intuitive eating and health at every size? Absolutely. So what we've come to know, particularly in the in the RD, registered dietitian, nutrition field, is that diets don't work. And so outside of the sphere of eating disorders, if we just stay with that for an example, you have people who are in different sizes and shaped bodies and the medical profession and the nutrition profession is saying you need to go on a diet and lose weight. And we know that 95% of diets fail, clients regain weight plus some, and yo-yo dieting actually creates, can create more harm. So that's kind of the kernel of where it started. And then we had to ask the question, what else can we offer our clients? And so that's when health at every size that that approach was kind of codified, I guess. It's been around since the 90s or so. A group of women here, black, large women, I think they, they use the word fat, black, fat women, developed the, the approach of health at every size. And the basic philosophy for those of your listeners, Millie, who are not as familiar, health at every size is the idea that no matter your weight, no matter your weight now, we can all do small things that can make us a little bit healthier and that doesn't involve weight loss. Things like improving your sleep, improving eating more consistently, trying to get out and take a few more steps if you're not very, if you're very sedentary. So it's kind of the pillars of health without a solo focus on weight. It also challenges what we've been told, which is untrue, that weight is a proxy for health and we now know that's not accurate and those two got conflated in the last 100 100 years or so so we're trying to fight back and not fight back that's not the right terminology we're trying to re-dust off the research that's been out there and say my goodness there is actual concrete research and evidence around this health at every size approach so we we adopted that and my introduction into eating disorders was through binge eating disorders that that type of eating disorder where clients were often were in higher weight bodies and we knew then just from the research that if a client is struggling with binge eating disorder is attempting to lose weight and treat binge eating it it doesn't work it's counterindicated so just from that treatment modality we knew that we had to treat the binge eating first and then let's see where the body and the body weight naturally settles to And health at every size has given us the ability to talk to our clients with actual research and say, forget about the weight loss and focus on health parameters. It's still a tough, it's a tough sell, to be honest with you, Millie, because for a lot of our clients, they're caught up, we all are influenced by the society and thin ideal and the aesthetics of what we look like. And that's where aesthetics gets confused with health. So that's why we adopted Health at Every Size and I just think it's a beautiful thing because it just it's so empowering because, again, no matter where you are, no matter what your weight is, just starting a couple of little things can make a huge difference. And actually there's more research now. Dr. Jennifer Guadiani, who wrote Sick Enough, has some lovely research around coming from a weight-inclusive approach and how just from that approach, without weight loss, a cohort of her higher weight clients their anthropometrics and their biometrics, their biomarkers, blood pressure, uh, blood glucose, et cetera, improved without any kind of weight loss intervention. So just the idea that the stress of weight stigma and weight bias and weight discrimination is another factor that is leading to these negative health consequences is huge right now. So we're, we're very involved in that. And then intuitive eating, Again, we're very research focused. So even though intuitive eating was my journey out of my eating disorder, so I knew it was a crucial piece. Once I looked at the research, and of course, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Reich have the intuitive eating workbook. They codified that about 20 years ago now. And what's beautiful about that is that in order to heal your relationship with food, there's no way, there's no way to do that if you are relying on external cues. 
calorie counting, weighing your food, portion, measuring, whatever it is. There's just no way to do that because it's not listening to the physiological needs. So intuitive eating is really about getting back in touch with your internal regulatory system that you're born with and satiety and preferences. And so there's no way to, in my mind, and stand to be corrected, but there's no way I think that you can heal your relationship with food and have a neutral relationship with food if you don't embrace what your body's telling you it needs and honoring hunger and listening to your body's cues as best you can if that system is, is a little dysregulated. So, and in my own lived experience, I knew that the intuitive eating piece was the only way I got out of that constant dieting. So I think it's a powerful combination. And Wendy Oliver Pine, again at OPC, big shout out to her because she was one of the first residential centers to include intuitive eating or the introduction of intuitive eating at that level of care. And so we, as an outpatient level of care, can not only introduce it, but help train our clients to be able to then become independent in that model. And it's a game changer. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more on, on all of those points. Do you believe that having clinicians with lived experience on a treatment team is important? Oh, I think it is so fantastic. And it's been the missing piece. Millie, in the substance use world and in the ED world, we've adopted a lot of the treatment approaches from the substance use world because we didn't have anything else. And substance use treatment has been around for a lot longer. The one thing that we didn't do, because I think we got very kind of academic, is we totally ignored the lived experience peer piece. And and it's only now, and I think honestly, I think Carolyn Coston has really been the one because she's such a trailblazer. Um, just man she's done it hard Carolyn is, is a friend and a mentor and I just adore and respect her she was one of the first therapists out there in the field to actually tell people and tell clients I had my own experience and for those who may not understand the history of psychology that's a no-no you don't tell your clients anything about you there's no disclosure you're a blank slate and we were trained in a similar way and as Carolyn said to me one day Melanie she said if you have a client that comes to see you and they've been struck by lightning and it's a very rare occurrence and they don't know anyone else that's ever been struck by lightning and they're traumatized and you've also been struck by lightning she said how do you think that would make that client feel if you shared that they would feel validated. They would be like, oh, thank God, someone who gets it. And she actually mentored me for about two or three years to actually finally start disclosing that I had my own lived experience because I was so afraid of being judged. So there's two pieces there, Millie, to your question around recovery coaches with lived experience. So if we think about it, we as clinicians, trained clinicians, have never been allowed to speak of our own lived experience. So it was really not committed on the radar, let alone having, I think, the fear of having someone who's not very well trained or doesn't have a license or whatever come in. And thank goodness the field has really opened up a lot more. And again, I think because people know that Carolyn's really buttoned up and they know that the coaching program that she's putting out there and the supervision and such, she's producing some really sophisticated recovery coaches. And we're realizing that the clients need that extra support. So in all honesty, the last two or three years, it's been a game changer for the field. It's something that I am, I'm so privileged to, to have had the opportunity to be a part of. And I'm constantly telling Carolyn that just thank you. Thank you so much for being that trailblazer for doing it because if she hadn't stood up and started this then we wouldn't be able to I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing wouldn't be able to have the impact I'm having to be able to be credentialed to deliver the content that I do and to be able to have that all backed by lived experience it truly is amazing and and we need people like Carolyn to have paved the way for it all to happen so it's it's an exciting time in the eating disorder world I feel I really agree. I really agree. I think it's fantastic with our recovery coaches and uh, yeah, and super excited. And every recovery coach I've spoken to is super busy and we need more. And it's, 
it's wonderful to see how quickly it's been adopted. So that's been great. Absolutely. Now you and your team at Balance started the instrumental Wake Up Weight Watchers social media campaign. For those listeners who aren't familiar with it, can you explain what it was all about and why you felt so compelled to take a stand? Absolutely. So just to give a little bit of context there, Millie, about three or four years ago, I'm forgetting the year now, Weight Watchers put out an advertising campaign aimed at teenagers that they could have free Weight Watchers treatment over the summer of that year. And in our field, we view dieting as a gateway behavior to developing disordered eating or an eating disorder. And teens, let's remind ourselves, teens are growing individuals. They are not fully grown adults. So the idea of restricting calories for a teen is absolutely counter to healthy development. We also know that you're putting a very vulnerable group at high risk of developing an eating disorder. So we were actually outraged. For us, it was the equivalent of one of the cigarette companies going into a high school and giving out free cigarettes or worse. So we, we got together with our community and we said, this is disgusting. We need to do something, you know, and our community being the eating sort of community rallied around us and we did a Twitter campaign, which was the hashtag wake up Weight Watchers, and it just went viral. And we ended up that particular weekend that I remember it happening, we ended up, I think we were second most common hashtag for that weekend. What happened, which was incredible around that, Millie, is sometimes you feel a bit alone, like you feel like you're just shouting to no one. But what happened is that within a day or two, Weight Watchers reached out to the Academy of Eating Disorders, even though we weren't, I feel we weren't speaking on behalf of the Academy, but reached out to the Academy of Eating Disorders. No, excuse me, they reached out to NIDA, National Eating Disorder Association, to speak to their CEO and they set up a meeting. And then I was, of course, very involved with and knew the CEO well at the time and spoke with her before the meeting and after the meeting and she told me about what had gone down. And what Weight Watchers decided to do after that was to bring on two eating professionals onto their board. So that all sounded well and good. Oprah sold some stock and their stock went from $100 per, per stock to around 30 So we, I don't think that was us that did that. We didn't set out to cause financial harm, but nonetheless, it caused a big upheaval. Subsequently, they went through a bit of a, a PR crisis and changed their name to WW, whatever and then the following year, they rolled out this app um, and kids with the traffic light thing. Um, so it was really disappointing. And the eating disorder professionals that are on the board, I think, are probably just there to make it look good because if they were really voicing concern, I don't think that this app would have come out again targeting adolescents. So that was kind of our foray into taking on the corporates and and I, I just, I guess I want to say, Millie, you know, we have the knowledge, we know the research, and we need to use our voice when something that is very harmful is being rolled out as a moneymaker, because at the end of the day, that's what it is. I was asked to write an article when the app came out and to try and succinctly and eloquently communicate my rage was, <laughs> was yes, that was definitely a, a challenge. Task. It was a challenge, that's for sure. But absolutely, I did it because we have to talk about this. We have to use our lived experience and channel that frustration and that anger into to communication out into the community for them to understand why this is not okay and to let people know these are the reasons why. You know, you might think, oh, well, this actually, this could actually be quite good. But no, you haven't thought about X, Y, Z. And I think for people who haven't been through eating disorders, aren't working in the field or don't have you know a really broad understanding of them it's difficult for them to look at it from different perspectives and that's why we must speak up when these things happen absolutely Millie because when you think about it and I'm so glad you wrote that article and somehow you know used your rage if we think about it society has been totally brainwashed on diet culture the thin ideal health excuse me weight is a proxy for health and all that sort of stuff so when we come at them and say no, putting teens on a, on a diet plan is a no-no. Honestly, I think the vast majority of society and a lot of healthcare professionals don't know why that's harmful. So to your point, there's a long way we need to go with education around these risks with disordered eating and eating disorders and the body image distress, et cetera. 
you know, and even you, Lily, with your podcast and your blogs and all of this great stuff that you're doing, you're really doing a great community service by getting knowledge out there. It's really important. Well, thank you. I think one, one, one of the things we did with the podcast and why we started it was because we wanted to smash those myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround eating disorders and really shine a light on eating disorders. I don't want there to be shame. I don't want there to be stigma. I want people to feel comfortable standing up, speaking out and not feel like they're going to be judged. And one of the biggest things for me was I wanted the podcast to save lives. We know it's done that already, which is really, really exciting. And it's having guests on like you that are giving little gems of wisdom that people then take and are able to utilize in their own recovery, which is just, it's pure gold. Now, you also have the amazing book, Redefining Wellness, The Ultimate Diet-Free Guide. Tell us about what that's all about and, and what made you bring it into the world. I'm a big believer that if there's a problem, use your voice to identify why something is problematic. But I'm a big believer in also coming to the table with solutions or alternatives. So easy to just sit in the cheap seats and mm. criticize everything. You know, it takes a lot more effort to come to the table with an alternative. And so I spoke to my team about that and I said, well, if we're going to criticize Weight Watchers, people are going to say, so what do we do? We need to give them something and direction and a pathway or some guidance about what to do. So we again reached out to our wonderful community and said, we want to put together an anti-diet book as an answer to Weight Watchers, an alternative, if you will. And it was just amazing. We just, you know, the who's who of the eating disorder world and new clinicians into the field and people who have their own lived experience and advocates. It was just such a lovely outpouring of support and expertise from so many different lenses. Um, and so we compiled, you know, all of the kind of an advice book, you know, and it was kind of one or two pages per each each person who contributed. And so we wanted to do this as a free thing which we did. So we have the free digital download and then we wanted to put on Amazon just for more exposure and Amazon won't let you give away free books. So we had to charge for, you can actually buy the book, physically bound book. And then all those proceeds go to Project Heal, which is one of the scholarship, scholarship associations here in New York, excuse me, here in the States. Amazing. Well, I'm sure there'll be lots of listeners who will be busy writing that down and going to download it after they've listened to this episode. Yeah, that's a gem actually. Yeah, thanks. What is the most valuable thing that your own eating disorder journey has taught you? Gosh, I've got a lot of thoughts going through my mind. I think one is that diet culture and measuring your worth through what you look like and what you weigh is incredibly toxic and it will steal your life to stay focused on that kind of external presentation is is one thing. Number two is sometimes you don't know that you're in a cage until you get out of it. In fact, usually you don't. And then number three I would say is that I mentioned a little earlier, the bandwidth and the complete, what, uh, absolute, consumption or obsessionality of an eating disorder you just don't realize that you're you're kind of you're just walking through life you're just taking steps through life you're not living life you're not flourishing you're not you're languishing you're almost living your life as an echo and so to move beyond an eating disorder and realize what you can do with that bandwidth when you're not so distracted and if you really focus your energy man you can move mountains you think about the energy it takes to sustain an eating disorder and imagine now focusing that in another direction around creating your ideal life or helping people or whatever is your thing, art, etc. Like look at what you're doing, Millie. It's just fabulous. And so to realize that we can move mountains if we use that bandwidth in a different way and I think those are some really key things. I've got to tell you, Millie, as I'm thinking this through with you right now, I'm feeling quite emotional because I realized that my life could have could have just stayed and it's quite frightening actually to think that. It's a gift. It's a gift to be fully recovered. It absolutely is a gift and I think it's really interesting to hear you say that you can still get emotional all these years on. I, I think for me, it doesn't mean how, I mean, gosh, recovered in 
2016. How many years does that make it? But, you know, I've been fully recovered for a long time and I still find myself having moments where I'll just get quite teary thinking about how close I came to not having and it might be a moment where I'm walking along the beach and I'm just listening to the waves and I'm feeling the warmth of the sun on my back and remembering how it used to be when I used to walk along the beach and how I was never present and how the incessant chatter and the you know, pain of my stress fractures and being freezing cold even under the warmth of the sun and just having those moments where you realize you came so close to losing it all and to now be here and to be here enjoying it. That's the reason why I do what I do because I want people to know that you can get there. You can have all of this and you deserve it and mm. we're all here to help you get out of it. That's right. That's so true, Millie, so true. And I think that's one thing I just love about my field is how many people are in our field who have lived the experience and we're just so passionate about it. There's just, honestly, there's so much authenticity and so much oh, empathy and, and compassion. It's, a, it's really beautiful to be around. It sure is. Now, in your opinion, what are the best ways that someone can support a loved one who is going through an eating disorder? Yes. It's a really good question because I have to say, I think for loved ones, it's probably one of the most frightening things that they'll encounter because as a loved one or a parent, you're not given a manual when you have your child that says, okay, if they have an eating disorder, this is what you need to do and these are the signs. So our parents or loved ones are coming in totally blind, often thinking they've done something wrong. But I will say the first thing that, that loved ones can do is educate yourself. Learn as much as you can about the illness learn that there's a genetic predisposition, learn that it's biological in nature. In other words, it's not your loved one's fault and they're not doing this to spite you and they're not doing this as out of vanity and all those myths, Millie. You know, so, so educate yourself so you can debunk the myths so you can have a better sense of what your loved one is going through and then through good communication, hopefully you'll be able to say to them, what do you need from me? If you're not at that level of communicating while well, that person is in denial, which is usually the case, myself was also in that place, and also very ambivalent, then there are toolkits through the National Eating Disorder Association and such where you can get support and help around how to talk to your loved ones, how to bring up this topic, how to maybe suggest, let's go to this free support group together. So we've started offering free support groups, Millie, through COVID actually, well, before that, but we tripled our, our, our offerings during COVID and people join us via Zoom from all over the world and often parents and loved ones will join us with their loved one. So that is great, like going with them to the appointment and supporting them. And I would say that it's really easy when we're scared because loved ones are terrified of what, that they might lose this person. And when we're scared, we often don't behave at our best. And fear often drives pressure and blackmail and very high-pressured, often very critical scenario where it's just not conducive to people being able to exchange feelings openly. So you can check in with that person about where they are and what do you want and are you distressed with this and can I help you get some support? I would say that those are some of the key things. So number one is educate yourself. Number one is, and number two, excuse me, get to a support group. There's free support groups, as I mentioned. You know, go to NIDA and check out the toolkit for caregivers with how to broach this topic with the person that you think might be struggling. And then number three is go with them, accompany them, offer to take them. That support means so much. You know, the clients that come into our free support group with a best friend or you know, a lover or family members, they're so grateful that person has come with them and it's rare. Usually we've got people showing up on their own and part of that is the shame, of course, but it's a beautiful thing. Finally, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those who are in the midst of their eating disorder battle? Absolutely, don't give up. Don't give up. It's going to be up and down. It's going to be two steps forward, one step back and that's normal and for the perfectionist, 
of us out there. <laughs> it's just crazy making. We totally get it. I would say find a good treatment team and plug in and just stay plugged in. Even when the eating disorder is saying, you can do this now on your own. You've got it. You should be able to do it on your own. Stay plugged in and get through that first crucial year to year and a half because that's when we really see some of that brain that brain renourishment happening and where the thought processes start to gain more clarity. And it's a crucial time for relapse. So do whatever you can to stay plugged in during those first 18 months. Hang in there. Get as much support as you need and deserve. And get a great recovery coach like Millie. And, and it's so worth it. It's so worth it. You have to have the why, right? You have to have the why. So you have to really think about what's your why. And with that why, you can get through anything if you keep your eye on the prize. Um, and, and know that it's hard, but it's so worth it. More worth it than you can begin to imagine. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Melanie, for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I know that this is an episode that is going to help so many people. It was my pleasure, Millie. Thank you so much for having me on today. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. There is hope at ended.org.au.